You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. John, chapter 6. We'll start for a little bit of context uh, in verse 35, and then we'll jump down to verse 52. So we're looking this morning at the, the departure of the many disciples and Peter's answer to Jesus' question. So verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. and Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Then down to verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
We have believed and have come to know that you are the only, you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Amen. Let's go to God together in prayer. Our Father, your word says that unless the Lord builds the city, the builders build in vain. And unless you should guard the city, the watchmen guard it in vain. And so this morning I recognize, Father, that unless you should preach, I preach in vain. And so we ask together, O Lord, that you would help that in spite of me, that together we would hear the voice of our shepherd. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to have a sight of our risen and glorious Jesus, that he who is altogether lovely, who is wonderful counselor, prince of peace, our great savior, our king, our Lord, and our friend, would be seen and loved by us today. Lord, we confess together that by your grace, you have moved our hearts so that we love you. We can say with all sincerity that we love our Savior Jesus. We long to love him more, and it is our great shame that we do not. And we pray that you would work today in such a way that we would come away our hearts beating for our master. And we would love Jesus Christ so much more. And pray that you would work on those who do not know you, that lost and hopeless sinners would be saved today. And that those who are lacking assurance, who are doubting of their salvation, would come away the spirit bearing witness within them that they do belong to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we read in verse 66 that after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And that raises a question. It should raise a question. Why? Why would it be that at this stage, in the life and the ministry of Jesus, after all that they have heard and all that they have seen, would we read the words that many of the disciples of Jesus Christ turned back and no longer walked with him? Well, the context actually gives us an answer to that. Jesus had said earlier in the text, I am the bread of life. And then he'd gone on and he had spoken in a way that had likely troubled many of them. Listen again to what he said. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And then we read in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, 
This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it or who can bear it? Not something you'd expect people to say after hearing Jesus teaching, after hearing Jesus preach. The reality is they were not happy with what he had said. Now, we're not told what exactly the problem was. It's very likely that some of these people, as they heard Jesus, misunderstood him to be speaking literally. But you'll notice that even after Jesus made it very clear that he was not speaking literally, but actually figuratively, spiritually, they still left him. They still walked away. So these were people who were already looking for an excuse to turn their backs and walk away from Christ. Now listen to Jesus as he briefly explains what he was saying. He had spoken about eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood. He said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus doesn't say any more than that. There isn't, as you might expect after speaking in this way, and and knowing, of course, how many would over the years misconstrue these words, that Jesus does not get into any further explanation. There's no treatise on the subject. Simply, briefly, he says, it is the spirit who gives life. And then in verse 64, he says something that, rather than helping, seems to further upset them. There are some of you, he said, who do not believe. And then in verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So just notice that. Here is Jesus dealing with some people who are having difficulty with what he's taught them. And rather than apologetically trying to explain himself or soften the the language in some way so as to appeal to them or to, to, uh, uh, to help with their difficulties, he simply says to them, there are some of you who do not believe. And clearly what he's saying to them is the issue here is not an intellectual one. The issue here is not that you are making some mistake that I need to explain. The issue is the sin of unbelief. We need to remember that that is often the case when people express difficulty with doctrines. The issue is not that we need to explain it better. The issue is one of the heart. So we read in verse 65, Jesus then says again, he says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And that's when we read, many walked away. So here they are, and they're unhappy with what Jesus is saying, that unless they eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, they'll have no part in him. And they're grumbling. It's a hard saying. That happens sometimes as people leave the church, having heard the sermon preached, grumbling. It's a hard saying. It wasn't particularly uplifting. But they're not saying, please help us to understand. They're complaining. It's an offensive doctrine to them. 
And so, as I said, Jesus gives a very brief answer. And then he explains the problem, again, briefly. And the problem is twofold. On one hand, the problem is these people do not believe. So again, their issue is one of the heart, as Paul put it in his letter to the Ephesians, that the understanding is darkened. The understanding is darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. The issue, he's saying, is an issue of the heart. They don't like what they're hearing. But on the other hand, the other part of the explanation is the sovereignty of God. Verse 65, why don't they believe? Well, because no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So you have that wonderful assurance earlier in John chapter 6 where Jesus says that if any will come to him, he will not cast them out. But the flip side of that is no one will come to him unless it's granted to them. And this answer that Jesus gives to them doesn't exactly solve the problem for them, does it? On hearing what Jesus says now, these grumbling disciples turn and walk away. And so what I want to do with you uh, this morning, first of all, is I want you to think with me about why it is that so many disciples have done as these disciples did here. Why is it that so many of those who seem to begin well, who begin with great uh, statements of faith, great promises, why through the ages so many of them have turned their backs on Jesus and walked away? Have you thought about that? Have you looked around and noticed in our own generation how many there are who, having put their hand to the plow, are now turning their backs on Jesus Christ, if not with their lips, with their lives? Why? I want to give you three reasons, and this is not an exhaustive list. But I think these are three, three key reasons why people do so often turn their backs and walk away from Christ. And the number one reason, as we see here in the text, is his doctrine. His doctrine. There are all sorts of doctrines, you understand, that scratch itchy ears. A lot of people have itchy ears and they want to hear certain things. And so there are, of course, and you know this as well as I do, there are all kinds of doctrines out there that most people find relatively easy to swallow. They're doctrines that are easy to listen to. And there are, of course, many people who prefer to live in a make-believe kind of world where they are the ones who are the arbiters of truth. They are the ones who decide, well, what do I want to believe? What law do I want to obey? What won't I believe? What law will I not obey? And then when they are confronted with his doctrine, the doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ, they want no part of it. Given the choice between submitting, bowing their knees to the doctrine of Jesus Christ and walking away, they choose to walk away. And many times they don't say they're walking away from the Lord at all. They just simply go and find another church. 
I've seen people over the years shopping for churches like they're shopping for clothing. And what they're doing is they're looking for something that they, they enjoy. The place, perhaps, that scratches that itchy ear. They act as if choosing a church were a matter of personal preference. But the reality is that often the choice to go to another church is a choice, whether these people will admit it or not, to serve a different Jesus. The problem they have is with his doctrine. It's not with the preacher's doctrine. It's with his doctrine. And those people may hide behind the host of options as if having all these many options means, therefore, that I get to choose. But the issue that they actually have is with the Lord Jesus Christ himself and his truth. And if they were really honest, they would simply admit it and walk away from Christ altogether. So that's number one. A second reason why people turn their backs on Christ is his providence. So first, his doctrine, and second, his providence. What I mean by that is they walk away from Jesus because they don't like what he does with their lives. You see, they understand, as you understand this morning, that the one who is ultimately responsible is God. Can disaster come to a city and God has not done it? Maybe things were fine when everything was going well in their lives. And you would hear them saying, God is good. But now that things have turned and they have begun to suffer and things are being stripped from their lives, and perhaps those whom they love are beginning to suffer. They become confused and eventually the confusion turns to anger. And they're angry because, again, they know ultimately who is responsible for it all. They know that it is his to give and to take away. And when he was giving, they were happy. They were perfectly content. But now that he is in the business of taking away, they fault him. They don't like him taking. They like him. They prefer him giving. And the reason why so many prefer the Lord in his giving rather than his taking away is because to many people, God is simply a means to their own end, a means to their own happiness. And not doing what they have decided is his job to do in order to make them happy. They no longer want him. And so like the rich man, they turn sadly and walk away. Third, there is his price. So people turn from the Lord for these three reasons. First, his doctrine. Second, his providence. And third, his price. There is a cost isn't there, to following Jesus. He warned us about that at the start. And there are, of course, many people who get it right away. They understand when we warn them, when we bring to them the Scriptures, and they decide this isn't for me. But there are also many others who start off quite well. They make big promises of what they will do for Christ. They say all the right words, they sing all the right songs, but presented with opposition, presented with persecution, presented with hardship, 
They deny Christ either with their lips or with their feet. And what we see through the ages is that there are so many who are in the church who have decided to follow Jesus, but what that means is they will follow him only so far. They're like the crowds who are fascinated with Jesus because he did all these miracles. They love the healings. They love the talk of heaven. They like the sound of peace and joy. But when following Jesus means taking up a cross and carrying it outside the city, they understand that means there's no coming back from that. And they love the world. When Jesus bids them come or tells them go, they refuse. They don't want to suffer. Now listen carefully. When Jesus says this way and men do not follow him, when Jesus says stop, go no further, and men do not stop, they can say all they like about themselves. They can pr pretend that they are spiritual. They can hide behind their theology, their theological knowledge. But all it is is lip service. They are honoring Christ with the lips rather than the heart. With their feet, they've walked away. Well, here is Jesus now, and he has been abandoned by the many. And he turns now to the disciples the 12, to ask them, essentially, what about you? Do you want to go away as well? And Peter's answer is so simple and so beautiful, isn't it? To whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So he answers Jesus' question with a question of his own. It's not just where else is there to go, but to whom are we going to go? You know, that's actually the problem with the many. They stumbled over the teaching. They stumbled over this issue, the other issue. And they stumbled because they never came for Jesus Christ himself in the first place. There was an attractiveness to religion to the system. There was something for them to gain. And they came to Jesus as if Jesus were a, a genie that you rub or you make a wish and he gives to you what you want. And here's Peter and he has his eyes on his Savior and he understands very clearly what the others seem not to have understood. If we leave Jesus... What will we have? We may gain the whole world, but we won't have Christ. We'll have nothing. So he says to Jesus, to whom shall we go? No. No, we're not going to leave you as well. And so what I want to do then with the remainder of our time this morning is I want to consider with you why there is nowhere else to go. Why is our answer like Peter's? To whom shall we go? When you are faced with hard sayings, 
a hard life, when you are faces of, with, faced with losses of various kinds. Some of you perhaps this morning have come here faced with loss of one kind or another. There may come a point in your life where serving Jesus will seem to have cost you just about everything. And you will see others abandoning Jesus. And Jesus may then come to you with this question. Are you going to go away as well? So why is our answer as Christians, as believers in Christ, why is our answer like Peter's? To whom shall we go? I want to to simply give you three answers to the question. This, of course, cannot possibly be an exhaustive list. We could go on for hours and days and months and years. And as I said earlier this morning, this will be a theme for us to study for all of eternity. But why? Three reasons. Number one, Jesus is a wonderful Savior. He's a wonderful Savior. Romans 5, verse 8. But God commended commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, we read, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. 1 John 4, verse 10, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. But think with me for a moment about our problem. We naturally, all of us, are wretched creatures, aren't we? All of us, by nature, destined for hell. And the reason we are destined for hell is because God is good. And we are not. We were born in sin. And it's as if we breathe it in all day long and we breathe it right back out. It marks, sin marks and sin mars every single aspect of our lives. We sin by our words. We sin by what we do. We sin by our thought lives. We sin not only by what we do, but we sin by what we fail to do. And our just condemnation from God is not just what we've done, but why we did it. Not just what we have left undone, but why we left it undone. That we are self-centered creatures whose whole orientation is away from God, naturally. So that apart from the miracle of new birth, We do not seek God. We do not want God. We do not glorify God. We live as if we were the center of the entire universe and there were no God at all. Now think with me, Christians, about what you do when you have sinned. As believers in Jesus Christ, when you have offended God and you go to God to confess what you have done, Isn't it true that you say something like David? David in Psalm 51 is recorded as saying, against you, you only 
have I sinned? It's as if nobody else counts. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So this is not David trying to make the thing seem more uh, acceptable, not trying to excuse or explain what he's done, but he says this evil in your sight so that you might be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. What's David saying? He's admitting to God that God is just in his judgment, that God is right to condemn him, that he deserves hell. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were by nature dead in our sins, not merely broken, crippled, in some way tripped up in this way or that way, but dead. And then we read, but God, but God who is rich in mercy. And then later in chapter 2 of Ephesians, by grace, You have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So there we were, lost in a sea of sin, pathetic, wretched creatures who loved our sin and wanted to stay in it. And what did Jesus do? What did he do? He could have left us to our sin He could have left us not desiring God, not seeking God. He could have cast a whole lot of us into hell, couldn't he? But listen again to what we heard earlier this morning from Isaiah as he prophesied of the coming Lamb of God. It starts off as Ephesians 2 did the problem, and then verse, we read this, but, but, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then verse 11, he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Is it any wonder that we boast in the cross as Christians? Our glorious Savior has paid it all, every last bit. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And what was it that compelled him to do this? What compelled our Savior to go to the cross? Love. That he loves you. And here's the glorious truth, that though time and time and time again you have sinned against him, and you will sin against him, Christ died for you. He loved you then, 
as he went to the cross with your names upon his breast. And he loves you now. And this is why he raises up preachers to preach not themselves, but to preach Jesus, to come to you as ambassadors, to plead with you to be reconciled to God. As they come telling you not only what you have done wrong, not only of your sin, but of the Savior who loved you and gave himself for you. The book of Acts tells us, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. And as he said, he will lose none of those whom the Father has given to him. He is a great, wonderful Savior. Second, the second reason that we can say like Peter, to whom shall we go, is that he is a good God. He is a wonderful Savior, and he is a good God. And I think it's important for us just now to distinguish between all the times we say that he is good because something good has happened to us and the mere fact that Jesus, apart from anything good going on in our lives, is good. No matter what happens to you, no matter what happens to me, he's good. We know, of course, that being God, he is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is wise. But I want you to think about his goodness now. You know the one thing that Jesus cannot do? He cannot sin. He simply cannot sin. He can do the impossible. He can do more than we can imagine. But he cannot be other than he actually is. And he is good. Everything that he does is perfectly right. He never left anything undone that had to be done. He never did anything, said anything, or thought anything he shouldn't. Our Savior is a good God. And when I say that, I mean also that he is kind. He's never mean. I know that many of you would like to say that you're never mean. We don't mean to be mean, maybe. But we, all of us, are sometimes mean. Never Jesus. Never vindictive. Never thoughtless. When we say that he is good, we also mean that he is merciful. And he's compassionate. He's a compassionate Savior. He's not like those who are untouched with the feeling of your infirmities. He's touched, touched with the feeling of your infirmities. And he is a Savior who is most, most willing to save. This is not something that he does begrudgingly, like we sometimes help one another out, doing it because there's a sense of obligation. He wants to. He delights in it. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He is that father who watches for the return of the prodigal. And you remember the father, was all, he saw his son from a distance. Why? Because he had been watching and waiting. 
And at the first sight of his son, he ran to take this boy in his arms and embrace him. That's our Savior. He is like that widow who, upon finding the lost coin, called the neighbors over to celebrate. He is that good shepherd who leaves the 99 to find the one. That Savior who is concerned not merely with the many who know him and who love him, but with the one, one single soul, perhaps here this morning, who is bound up in sin. You know, as I've searched the Bible on this theme, on the goodness of God, I have found that the Bible uses a number of words to communicate similar truths. We are told that God is gracious. We're told that God is merciful, that he's long-suffering. He's pitiful. He's slow to anger. But the Bible goes further than that because it also tells us that he is, well, he's not just pitiful, but he's very pitiful. He's not just gracious. He's very gracious. But the Bible doesn't only use those words, words like mercy and grace, in their singular. Rather, it speaks of the mercies of God. And if you've been a child of God for any length of time, you know that it's not just mercy, it's mercies. And the manifold mercies of God. And the multitude of his mercies. But not content to stop there. God insists that his mercies are sure mercies. And they're great mercies. They are mercies great above the heavens, he says. We are told in the Bible that they are great not only in number, they're great also in magnitude. They're not only sure mercies and great mercies, they're also tender mercies. But the Bible goes further than that. It teaches us that God is rich in mercy, and he's plenteous in mercy, and he's full of compassion. We are told that he has abundant mercy. He's full of mercy. He's the father of mercy. In one psalm, we're told 26 times that his mercies endure forever. In the same way, the Bible talks not only of his kindness, but his great kindness and his marvelous kindness and his everlasting kindness. The Bible speaks of his merciful kindness and his loving kindness and his excellent loving kindness and his marvelous loving kindness and then even the multitude of his loving kindnesses. And Isaiah tells us that the mountains shall depart, if you can imagine that. The mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. And then as if driving it all home, the Bible compares his mercy to a father's pity for his child. It says that his friendship is better than a brother's friendship and that his love is greater than a mother's love. You know, this is the Jesus, this is the Christ who looked out over that city, Jerusalem, these reprobate sinners, and wept. 
as he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killeth the prophets and stoneth them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen does gather her brood under her wings, and you would not. Do you see, he's saying it wasn't that he would not. It wasn't that as he looked out over the city of Jerusalem, he was offended and aggravated and irritated and disgusted. No, he would have gathered them. He would have taken them in under his wings. He was willing. They were not willing. And the same is true today. The same is true today. We badly mistake Christ when we think that there is any unwillingness on his side. Unwilling to let you go on in your sin, yes. But willing, willing to save. And so he invites you to come. He entreats you to come. And he assures you that if you do come, he will not cast you out, even you. This is the Savior who sympathizes with sinners in their weakness, who set his face like flint to go to Calvary, who for the joy that was set before him went to the cross and drank down the full cup of the Father's wrath. Not to condemn sinners, but to save. And why? Why all of that? Because... Mystery of all mysteries. He loves you. And as he said in his prayer in John 17, he wants you to appear with him in glory. He is so good. But then third, why is our answer, to whom shall we go? The third reason is because he is worthy. He is worthy. You know, when others are turning their back on Jesus, if not with their lips, with their lives, going back to the world, and you are tempted perhaps to do the same, and I do believe this is a common temptation, when following Jesus seems to hold for you only hardship and suffering, And the other way, the other road, seems to you very bright and cheerful. Why would you go on with Christ? Why, if following Jesus holds so much loss and so much suffering, why would you say with Peter, I'm going to stay the course. To whom shall I go? And the answer, Christian, is because he deserves you. Because he's worthy. I want to speak for a moment to the believers who are gathered here. Let me put to you a question. Haven't you, if you were to give an honest answer, haven't you found in Jesus that treasure hidden in the field? You remember the parable Jesus told about the man who discovered, he went into this field and discovered a treasure. And he was so glad, he was so excited that he He went back and he sold everything so that he could buy the field to get the treasure. Isn't it true that you have found in Jesus that treasure? That he is the pearl of great price. 
And when you made that discovery, and you found out who this Christ is, how, alter, how lovely he is, how glorious, how good, that you were willing to part with the whole world so that you could get the field, so that you could get the treasure. And having sold everything, having then parted with the whole world to get the field, to get Jesus, did you lose by it? Did you ultimately lose? Your answer isn't it is not at all. What, what have you lost? You've lost nothing. Goods and kindred, perhaps. But what have you gained? Everything. Everything and more. More than words can describe. More than an eternity can tell. So what now? When things are difficult, are you going to turn your back on him? No way. Christians, your answer with me, with Peter, surely is, Jesus, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, don't you, from the depths of your being, that he deserves more. He deserves better than that. And it is still true today that were it true, were it in fact true, that the whole realm of nature were yours, that that would be an offering far too small. Christian, he deserves you. He has been a friend to you, and he deserves your loyalty in return. He has bled for you, and he deserves that you should magnify him, whether it be by life or by death. He has loved you with an everlasting love, and he deserves that you should love him in return. Now, consider again with me the cross. It was there that Jesus not only bled and died, but he drank down the full cup of the Father's wrath for our sin. So that we can say by faith, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Does he not deserve those for whom he died, Christians? Does he not deserve those for whom he died? Does he not deserve a reward for what he has suffered? I could go on and talk to you about the fact that he is our creator and simply by virtue of being the creator of the heavens and the earth that he deserves whatever he demands of his creatures. But I want you to think rather of what he deserves as our redeemer. As the redeemed considering him who died for us. As you view Calvary and you consider the man of sorrows there bearing the father's wrath Wounded and bruised, not for another man's sins, but for your sins, your iniquities. What's the cry of your heart this morning? What's the cry? Isn't it true that you know now from the very depths of your being that he deserves the reward of his suffering? And that reward is that he should get those for whom he died. 
that they should be his and that they should show forth his praises. He deserves that they should live for him, that they should think on him and breathe for him. He deserves that they should live for him and die for him, that they should sing for him and speak for him. He deserves their love and their affection and their service and their life. He deserves their all. So that wherever God has placed you, you would live and die serving and loving and praising Jesus. And believing Christian, I'm speaking about you. The Spirit bears witness within you right now that these things are so. Bears witness within you right now that you are His. You have been taught to cry, Abba, Father. You are a citizen of heaven. You are a son or daughter of the living God. Your sins have been buried in the deepest sea, and God says, I will remember them no more. And Jesus, as he looks at this congregation, can say, behold, I make all things new. You are a new creature. And all of this by grace. None of it your own doing. All of it done for you. And the cost was all his. So now what? What's our response? I love the way the hymn writer put it. He said, all for Jesus. All for Jesus. All my being's ransom powers. All my thoughts and words and doings. All my days and all my hours. All for Jesus. And so I ask you again, will you also leave him? Others have left him. Others will leave him. They may come when you look around you and it's you against the whole world. But I think I can say today that I know your answer. If the Spirit of God is within you, your answer is like Peter's. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Christian, he is worthy. He is worthy. And one of the things that so excites me about heaven is that while it is true that in this life I managed to do so little for Jesus, that I have an eternity ahead of me in which I can serve him forever and ever and ever. You know, I love that song that we sing. We'll sing it shortly. It goes like this. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, gracious Savior of my ruined life, my guilt and cross laid on your shoulders. In my place, you suffered, bled, and died. And then later, 
O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, may all my days bring glory to your name. I want to talk for just a moment with those of you who are here who aren't sure whether you are saved, those who know you're not. We sang not long ago that hymn, What a Savior, What a Friend. What a Savior, what a friend. That hymn speaks of Jesus as the friend of sinners. And you're here this morning and you know, you know that you're a sinner. Isn't it wonderful then to think that he is the friend of sinners? That this Jesus is a friend of sinners. Why don't you come to him then now as the friend of sinners and ask his help? Remind him of what he is. You know, I have so often gone to Christ and I have reminded him that he is a savior of sinners. And I have told him, Jesus, that's what I want. You're a savior of sinners. You save sinners from their sin. That's what I want. I want to be delivered from my sin. And so listen to me this morning. Are you here this morning and you're sin sick? You're just sick with sin. Well, Jesus is a great physician. He's a great physician, the great physician. Are you here and you're weak and you're overwhelmed with sin that you cannot stop? You're overwhelmed by a heart you can't change? Well, Jesus Christ is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And so why don't you now, today, put Christ, the Savior of sinners, the great physician, to work? Put him to work. He loves to be put to work. This is all you're doing when you come to him. Think of his gladness, the gladness of the heart of Christ when one lost sheep is found. Do you know how glad he would be this morning? How glad he would, you would make him if you would put him to work for you in this way. If you came to him as the savior of sinners to be saved from your sin. Tell him the trouble. Tell him your sin. Don't make excuses. Lay it all before him and then trust him to do the saving. It's what he came for. And you think then of what he did at the cross. Remember that all he did there as he went to Calvary, as he suffered on the cross, was that he might see the travail of his suffering and then be satisfied. And so I ask you too, as I asked earlier, does he not deserve something for what he has done? Does he not deserve a reward? And you know, sinner, you are his reward. You are his reward. So let him have it. Why should Jesus say of you, as he did as he wept over Jerusalem, I would have gathered you. I would have gathered you, but you would not. Come this morning and hide yourself under his wings. Look to Jesus and live. And to the rest of you, I pray that by God's grace, perhaps some of you have been encouraged in, in your own faith. Some of you perhaps here this morning doubting your own salvation. And the Spirit has borne witness within you as you have answered like Peter. I think many of you, as you've considered Jesus today, this has been the echo of your heart, hasn't it? Jesus, to whom shall we go?
as you survey the options, as you look out over the world, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Isn't it wonderful to be able to say of Jesus, I am his and he is mine, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you know the condition of each one today. We thank you that as we've gathered in this place, that you've come to us. That you come in treating with sinners, with kindness and with mercy. How we thank you and praise you that you are a great Savior, able to save to the uttermost. That there is no situation too difficult for you, no man too wretched, no woman too lost. We glory, O oh God, in the cross of our Savior. We recognize that all we have is in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, together we would say to you with Peter, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are a wonderful Savior. You are so good. And, Lord, you are worthy. And we pray that it might be true that for however long we have in this world, that our days would bring glory and honor and praise to our great Savior. That you would help us as we rejoice in what has been done, as we glory in the hope that has been set before us, as we walk through this world knowing that you shall never leave us and never forsake us, that we would live wholly and entirely for you. And that you who have suffered so much should receive your reward and be glad. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.